This is Andrew. And Wolf, what's your topic this week? Strict foundations versus flexible foundations. That's something uh, Californians tend to know something about. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm not even going to ask. No. Uh, I was thinking that you're going to put in trampolines right? in there or something. Okay. Like flexible foundations. I don't know. But, sure. But anyway, in episode 85, I uh, mentioned one of my favorite uh, books is uh, Writing Solid Code by Steve McGuire. And uh, he had this example of Realloc, which is a, a, a standard C API for um, memory management. And his entire point of the, one of the chapter that he addresses Realloc in is that there's, there's – n- you can basically replace entire C memory manager, malloc free, everything with calls through realloc because realloc is extremely permissive in what, how it interprets the, the, the variables you give it, the arguments you give it. And so, and I to- totally agree with Steve there. And when I read that chapter, it changed how I wrote software. So I'm a big fan of this ideology of, of, well, I wouldn't call it ideology, but the idea that uh, you want to make things that are are kind of prone to uh, being used the right way, kind of have a certain type of affordability to them, that we might talk about in the next episode. But the you look at things like uh, Swift and Objective-C, obviously Swift can be much more precise in terms of how you, you specify the strictness of your software, how things work. I mean, Objective-C has has this uh, you know dynamic runtime, and initially all the uh, type annotations were even optional, just everything was this id. Um, and so and that was kind of bolted on later, which kind of makes sense when you look at how the parameters kind of look kind of bolted on, <laughs> because it was. <laughs> um, and I'm also a, a total fan of like, SQL schemas or entity models versus like the collections of JSON docs and, and stuff like that. Um, the information about information there, I, I feel, allows uh, software to be better written in less time. And so I'm a I'm a big fan of kind of the the strictness of software of of, of really nailing things down. And um, then there's this thing called Postel's law. And otherwise known as the robustness robustness principle, and uh, I'll throw a Wikipedia link in there. Here, let me make a note so I don't forget to do it. Wikipedia, and um, so it's it was specified one way in the TCP uh, RFC, but uh, the I like the common rewording of it better, so I'll use that. Be conservative in what you send, and be liberal in what you accept. And it's all about having to do with interoperability. And the idea here is that you should really knuckle down and when you send something, you should try to follow the spec as closely as possible. But when you accept things from the outside, you should uh, try to be more liberal and, uh, you know, kind of if things aren't quite right, try to make it work anyway. Um, this was arguably one of the big factors why TCP became um, what it is today, the, the networking uh, standard. Um, however, it's, that's not to say that Postel's law or the robustness principle is uh, altogether good. There's a shortish blog posting by Trevor Jim called Postel's Law is Not for You, and I recommend you read that. And there's also the robustness principle reconsidered by Eric Allman, which I definitely recommend you, everyone read. It's a fantastic article. It was in the ACMQ, published by them. And uh, it gives a lot of a lot of uh, kind of backgrounder and like how standards are designed and so forth. But uh, it, it, a lot of the um, well, probably the 
one of the reasons why, well, two reasons you post those laws probably not great right now is that we've moved on since the kind of the wild west days of, and where every, when people were just trying to get things working at all and trying to get buy-in. And now, guess what? Computers are everywhere. And um, so now we kind of we – have, we have to worry about things about um, kind of evolving networks forward. forward. Um, so how do you do that? If everyone's very liberal in what they accept, it's hard to – it can be hard to actually make extensions because people will try and interpret those things and they won't know what, the, what it means. And also we have a lot more security issues nowadays. Um, and I'm, I'm sure we all know about that. So – with uh, there's this kind of like this um, there's HTML which was basically tag soup, and everything you can write in valid code and browsers would try to make sense of it as, as best they could, and then there was XML which was um, much more strict and the entire idea is that if it wasn't perfectly correct it would be uh, that it would, you get a big fat binary zero and say no I'm not going to deal with this. Um, and then there was XHTML, which uh, what tried to bring the strictness and kind of composability of XML to HTML. And as we all know, XHTML utterly failed. And part of the reason for that was because of its, uh, its strictness. That HTML is tends to be generated uh, by various uh, programs, and sometimes they get things wrong, and it can be quite difficult to figure out exactly what's wrong. And in the meantime, um, the user's page doesn't load at all. And so that was a pretty bad user experience. And HTML has basically kind of kind of moved forward now where with HTML5 that the, <clears throat> instead of having kind of liberal interpretation of these tags is that they actually uh, have written down the behavior of how you deal with bad tags. And so this is interesting because it's still pretty flexible, but it also defines a lot of the – it used to be uh, the behavior across browsers would be dramatically different. But so this – and so I'm a big fan of strictness and um, Postel's Law, I like the concept of it, but may, maybe it's, just, uh, it's not for our time. But I've been um, kind of taken with this idea recently about how it's – you can't build strict systems – to the very bottom. And when you look at it, it's, it's manifestly obvious because um, the things we fun- fundamentally deal with are bits. And bits are essentially informationless by, um, by themselves that we have to interpret them. And so reinterpreter, reinterpretable bits are our bedrock. Uh, and so this flexibility is actually our bedrock. Um, and it's, it turns out that's easier to build um, essentially constrained systems. I want to say inflexible systems, but that sounds kind of negative, so I'll just say constrained systems and constrained in a bad way, like malloc only does one thing instead of realloc, that, it's, <clears throat> that um, you can build constrained systems on top of flexible systems very easily, and it works really well. Um, that's the entire thing where with Objective-C we could add static typing onto the runtime t- uh, systems of Objective-C. Uh, core data model files themselves are stored as originally as plists. And, uh, and so we can... So there was this... Um, there is this uh, podcast, and maybe it actually exists in the real world, like, you know, actually broadcast by radio. It probably is, but I, I'm just a podcast guy. I don't listen to real radio. Called Radiolab. And um, they... They had this really interesting episode that's uh, 40, that's 42, 
of Mizzen, I'll link to the episode, about uh, kind of what we take for granted about bio- biology isn't true. So I have very, very limited knowledge about biology. Um, but I have this kind of this idea that we have like these cellular factories and you have genes that make proteins and that's what they do. And um, that, you know, there's these little factories, little machines. And I, and this is one of the reasons why I like the uh, small talk and biological analogy about how we can have these different actors sending messages to each other. And they're all these kind of machines uh, interoperating and communicating with each other. So this guy uh, named Carl Zimmer, who worked works or really studies or something at Caltech, he did this really interesting thing where um, they actually are now now able to, and I wasn't able to access the original paper. It's behind, I couldn't find it or it's behind a paywall or something. But from what I could tell, you know the, how like, the uh, lightning bugs, they really like to take the, like, the, the ability for them to make light and like, ra- randomly stitch those, that ability into various uh, biome th- things to show like this can glow now too. Well, so they actually uh, were able to do this at such a low level that they could actually um, get it to, to blink when a gene was turning on a protein. So you could actually, you know, with a microscope, go look and watch these, uh, these cellular factories working. And to, uh, so they did this with E. coli, and they had um, a bunch of clones. They're all clones of each other, so they're genetically identical. And so this is a basic biological function. This is... Uh, making proteins, turning on proteins, right? And what's interesting is when they actually took a look at it, you think you'd see uh, kind of like a steady blinking action. Like um, it would just turn on and off, turn on and off, turn on and off. And, and I'm doing totally injustice to this Radio Lab episode. If you want a much better treatment, I recommend you listen to that episode itself. But I'll continue on. And <clears throat> what they found is that it was much more sloppy that some didn't light up at all, some just did three rapid bursts and then burnt out. Um, and if you took kind of look at the macro picture, that it seemed extremely chaotic. That we, and this is the basic biological function, and it turns out that we are built on a foundation of chaos. Um, it turns out there are, are other systems, kind of higher level systems, interactive systems, that end up basically filtering out this chaotic noise trying to keep the good signal. And so this made me think a lot about software. And I'm starting to wonder, it's like the software, I'd, I'd really like the strict model, but at its, at its foundation, it is flexible. And I'm kind of, I think we can, um, we can write software that takes advantage of this chaos. Like you view software as a way of interacting with systems and realize things will uh, go very wrong and try to deal with it. And much along these lines, uh, Netflix wrote a, a piece of software called Chaos Monkey. And Chaos Monkey is this program that basically walks your uh, AWS, uh, Amazon Web Services uh, servers, and basically randomly turns things off. And the idea here is that uh, you want to have kind of like make things go wrong all the time. Well, asterisk there. Make things go wrong all the time. That way your systems have to be reliable and resilient in the face of failure. Uh, so much like those uh, little, <laughs> those um, in the 
E. coli that was not doing the, the quote-unquote right thing, but somehow the larger systems work, um, random things can be broken all, all the time, and the system keeps working. Um, the asterisk there is that turns out I did a little bit of reading that they don't they don't run this they don't run Chaos Mon- Monkey during peak hours, which is probably a good idea because people really want their uh, House <laughs> of Cards. But um, so I also linked to the Netflix Chaos Monkey GitHub repo. It might be worth looking at there. And so I don't know. It's this entire idea of having these very chaotic systems that we can. And then let's assume the chaos and these flexible systems that we can build stronger things on top of, um, these constraints on top of. Maybe maybe this is the future of software. Maybe the future of software is less like the Terminator and more like humans. So that, that's your takeaway? I, I, I've been thinking about it. <laughs> well, I'm not sure. So the idea that the foundation is flexible... It seems like you you might be putting together two concepts, which is the foundation accepting flexible input from above, from from higher levels, versus the foundation itself being kind of wonky and unreliable and weird. That's a good point. I'm definitely complaining. Um, and I'm not sure. You know, the first one is definitely something to think about. They're all they're both things to think about, but maybe in different contexts of what you're trying to fix. Is the foundation being wonky something that you want to kind of allow for because, well, software is never going to be perfect. The, the second one is, is that the foundation might not be perfect. The first one is the rest of your code might not be perfect. And the fact is, since none of it's going to be perfect, maybe you need both. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Alrighty, so I'm going to be talking about, and, and should I do the same disclaimer you did last week? Or does, I mean, it has nothing to do with what you're talking about. <laughs> um, I'm going to be talking about React Native ah. this week. Um, although I, I'd like it to be this kind of thorough, well-thought, completely researched introduction to it, but I didn't have time to repair that. So this is basically going to be a mishmash of the information I was able to gather, plus a healthy dose of my own opinions, mm-hmm. which is pretty much all of my topics, but, but there you go. So You get what you're paid U- for. <laughs> yes, seriously. So the URL, github.com slash Facebook slash react dash native, that's where you can go to have a look at it. This ties in with something that's been in my topics file, as Wolf knows, for mm-hmm. a long time, GUI functional programming, which is something that I'm interested in, even though I don't quite know what it means. <laughs> it ties in with uh, probably a bunch of things, but specifically, I talked about in episode 124, Old Apple Meets New Apple, how difficult it was for me to imagine Apple releasing a new Swift-based functional framework to replace Cocoa. Mm-hmm. This is in part, when I look at these kind of frameworks or libraries or whatever, this is me trying to imagine it by looking at other ways that people have have done this. Now, other people have kind of raced ahead of Apple on this, and I don't think it's a coincidence that the people who have done so are either entirely or partially based in the web world, Yeah, where things are not as locked down as they are in Apple's ecosystem. They can experiment. They can do whatever they want. In those ecosystems, the word React appears to be a thing. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, in addition to the React that Facebook does, which I'll get to in a second, there's also Reactive Cocoa, mm-hmm. which appears to be a completely unrelated framework, yeah, right? Yeah. It's not like they, they mix and match for, uh, by GitHub, by some people at GitHub, and that's reactivecoco.io. I won't be going into that today, but I just thought it would be interesting to mention it. Mm-hmm. 
And as part of functional gate programming, I'm sure I'll get to it in the future, or I'm not sure, but I'll, I want to. So React is, just by itself, that name, React, is the name of Facebook's library. And the exactly what it is is a bit hard to pin down. There isn't like one page which said, here's one sentence about it, because I think it is kind of a big enough deal, and the people who are using it and who are writing it have immersed enough in its world, it's a big enough world, that most of the people who use it already know what it is or already know its <laughs> topics. So I did actually find it a little difficult to kind of get some answers to certain things because the people who were using these concepts just used them mm-hmm. because that's, that's what they were. So there is a webpage that Facebook, one of the many Facebook webpages about this stuff called Why React? And they say, we built React to solve one problem, building large applications with data that changes over time. My response being, isn't that every big web page? So, hmm. um, you know, I guess basically they're kind of saying, well, we want to have a better way of making large web applications. Now, what they do here is they use something called components to uh, to create their their web pages, that their their dynamic web pages, and they do spend some time arguing why this is better than uh, HTML templates or things like that, your component is a bit of code that completely uh, uh, creates, that renders the HTML of that component Mm -hmm. instead of being logic that fills in a a template where it's only that template that you fill in. This is completely redrawing the web page. And so they have a bunch of other things to talk about in terms of why React is better than other web frameworks. Um, But in particular, they say, well, if you have a model then you create this series of components. You define these components. And so these components are a lot like functions in functional programming in that, you know, you take input to this function slash component and then out of it, you get the, the, the bit of that web page that goes with that component. Mm-hmm. It is unrelated to any other component. Mm-hmm. They're not, um, you don't have to worry about interaction between the two, at least in theory. Mm-hmm. And so there's no side effects of it. And you, there's no state. From mm-hmm. it. You take your input, and then you get your output to it. Now, since React is a web framework, they're talking about its benefits in terms of in terms of your web page, in terms of the DOM. They talk a lot about in terms of the DOM. Yeah. So they say each of these little components re-renders, and there's actually a, a function called render, mm-hmm. what, they, what they need to render to make the whole web page. But then the, the React engine will take all of that all that results and then kind of diff it against what's there currently. Right. So even though in theory you are regenerating the entire page and sending the entire page down, actually I guess you're not sending it down because it's all being done locally, mm-hmm. but all being sent to the, to the web browser for rendering. And that could be very slow. Well, they make it faster by doing their own diff mm-hmm. and only changing the bits that need to get changed. Mm-hmm. They definitely throw some computer mm-hmm. science at that to achieve some good optimizations because they are functional. Right. Which is something that I see a lot of functional programming talk about a lot of people mm. who do functional programming you know they talk about how well yes in theory this would be slower because we're redoing everything but we uh we optimize it as part of the whole system mm-hmm. now i didn't get into this in too much detail but within each component within each object in the ui hierarchy if i'm understanding correctly there are these two properties involved there's self.props and self.state correct and oh great why don't you know maybe you should give it <laughs> um the again, this is one of the things where I, there was no like one sentence which said, "Oh, props is this and state is this." I could not find that web page where they talked about that. But it seems like props is the stuff that's that's from your model 
that's immutable and state is the stuff that is uh, mutable and therefore probably more likely to be from user input. Yeah, I believe so. And you, you, that's because you, um, like the crutch here is that state is evil. So, you know, the, the, so the beautiful mutable stuff could be in the props and, and st- the evil state could, you know, the evil is in the state. So that's user input, evil user input. Evil user input, which is, of course, vital to having a UI. Anyway, um, so it seems to me that from the example that I saw, the, the higher level component, so let's talk about like a table. A table component would recreate all of its row components, for example, and then somehow, and I'm not quite exactly sure, pass down such that it gives the proper props values to each row, mm-hmm. and the row uses that as it is. Now, it occurred to me, looking at this, seeing how they did this, this is basically, that Coco has a lot of this already. Of course, the, the data source mechanism for yes, table yeah. views is basically the same thing. Coco bindings is a lot of the same thing. KVO lets you do a lot of this by saying, well, we'll change this UI piece of UI based on this piece of model. Mm-hmm. And yet it was just described in their documentation as if, wow, this is the, you know, this is the best thing. You should do this. Everyone should do this. Well, everyone kind of is already doing this to a degree. Like a lot of Cocoa is already built on, on stuff like this. So it seems that React, maybe this is seen in React land as something that's totally new Precisely because they're they're still in this kind of wild west world of web development, where they're comparing themselves against other web frameworks as opposed to comparing themselves against sort of mature GUI frameworks on on the application side on uh, you know uh, Windows stuff or, or or Cocoa. Not sure about that, but that's one. I don't know. That's one thing that came to mind about that. They have another motto as part of this called "Learn Once, Write Anywhere," and that comes more into play with React Native, which going to talk about a little bit because of course the the thing they're reacting against so to speak <laughs> is the right once run anywhere motto that came from it might have come from before that but it was used a lot in the java world because sure. people said well you know hey it's you know you have one code base and it's just interpreted on each platform and yay everything's the same everywhere and you'll save so much time well if we've learned anything we've learned that that doesn't work and what they're doing with React Native is, is a different philosophy. And it seems to be a philosophy which is, which is actually quite old. Because what they're saying is, all your GUI programming, if you want it to look like native stuff on, on iOS, I guess they don't really have a Mac thing yet, and probably won't. But if you want it to look, look like what, a, what an iOS application will look like, you have to use the components of an iOS application. There is a React, and, and another thing to mention, <laughs> since I'm going so fast here, it, uh, it kind of glided over it, is this is all JavaScript, because mm-hmm. it's a web framework. Yeah. So you write your, all your logic, all your custom logic in JavaScript. That is also true with React Native. You still write all your logic in JavaScript. But when you come down to it on an iOS app, the way they kind of get it to the point where they say, well, you, you should use this for iOS, is it's not just a crappy web page mm-hmm. masquerading as a native application title. It's um, you know it's actual native components, and they do this by having kind of their JavaScript wrap native classes. So there's uh, like RK View is a, is a native subclass of UI View mm-hmm. that can do view stuff, but that is run through JavaScript. And so if you say, well, I'm going to use the same UI logic 
on the web page and for my iOS application, like creating a table about the same way, you still need to write specific components for the web page versus for iOS. Uh, or at least there's going to be some difference between the two, whether they need to be entirely different or not. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. But, and that's, you know, that's how you say, well, you write it in the same kind of way uh, with the same philosophy behind it. That's the learn once aspect of it, but you still need to write different things for each one. Which also, again, in the same way before, as I say, hey, this sounds familiar to me. Well, this is basically the way we wrote cross-platform Windows Mac apps. Again, back in the mm-hmm. day, you wrote your cross-platform stuff in the cross-platform language of the day, mm-hmm. which was... C++. C++. And then you wrote your individual UI components, which would react, there's that word, to the, the model changes to whatever your, your shared state was in their custom ways. It's kind of the same thing, just rewritten for the web age. Mm-hmm. And now people, I guess, you, I guess you can't really write web pages on C++ or people wouldn't want to, but it does seem like it's basically the same. It's the same idea. This is not a new concept. Well, at that uh, level, it's the same idea, but I, I think the functional stuff is interesting. But can, please go on. Um, so I did try this for a little bit. Again, I didn't have that much time to do it. Um, it strikes me that this is, this is the way to write iOS applications for people who don't want to write iOS applications. I mean, that's really kind of the only way to describe it. I did run through it. I mean, they talk uh, a bunch of the web pages where they say, well, here's why you should use this. Well, the reasons why you should do this is all generally include reasons why, you know, you don't want to write an iOS app. Well, you don't want to have to go through the compile cycle over and over and over again because it's all JavaScript pages and they're not compiled. So rerunning your your app or refreshing your app takes is much faster because mm-hmm. you're not using you know, the Xcode native stuff. Well, that also means you're not using any of the Xcode native stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're you're not using Interface Builder and you're not using Autolea. You're not using much of Apple's infrastructure to do this. Apple is just a dumb container mm-hmm. for your logic. And that, you know, the people who want to write native iOS applications like that are the people who haven't taken the time to learn all of that stuff and do the things the way Apple wants you to. Why does Apple want you to do those things in that way? Because they're continuously giving you new stuff, new ways that they think apps should look the best, should act the best, should have their features that they want you to have. This is I, have to th- I wasn't thinking this strongly about it before, but now that I'm kind of saying it out loud, you know, this is kind of flash all over again, I think, as far as Apple is concerned. Because this is somebody saying, we don't want to learn this stuff. We don't want to use this stuff. We want to be web developers. It's also, uh, it occurs to me, I did hear this thing, and I'm not sure if I mentioned it on air before. There was one person who came to NS Coder Night years ago. I don't remember his name. Probably wouldn't uh, mention the name even if I did remember it. Who said that what they were doing at Facebook at the time I talked to him, was that because they were having trouble finding iOS engineers, they were taking all of their engineers and sending all of them to iOS camp, basically. Mm-hmm. They were teaching each, each you know, groups of 30, whatever it was, you know, hey, okay, now you got, you know, new, minting their own new iOS developers. Mm-hmm. This framework seems to be, to me, what you get when you do that. Hmm. People who learn enough about iOS to be dangerous don't really want to be there, but it's their job now because they've been told now they're iOS developers. Hey, I want to get my work done, but I still want to be a web developer. This is how you do it. So I think it is hard to talk about this in a functional GUI manner in terms of solutions for GUI for functional GUI programming for iOS, because this is really a solution to 
how to be a web developer and write iOS applications. First and foremost, that's what it is. It's only if you get beyond that and you say, well, I don't care about that. They, one way or another, I can write JavaScript. I can write Cocoa. It doesn't matter to me. Then you can get down to whether the functional system, as you were talking about, as I was talking about, is the right way to do this. Hmm. And again, I don't have, I'm not going to talk about this at too much length, but I do have concerns about this idea of saying that the, that the UI is just a complete redrawing of the model state each time the models changes because it's, it seems to me that that is what's that doing is saying, we're going to make things work like a functional program should by completely dumbing down what your UI can do because a lot of what the UI programming is, is making sure that this, the exact UI effect that you want happens at exactly the right time. And if you kind of disconnected the two and said, well, we're just going to redo everything every time in the UI, you're, I don't know, I think you're kind of trying to slide away, trying to slide under the rug all of the complexity of that, of that changing state at the UI level. Animations happening, you know, going from one state to another, from the second state to the third state. What if they overlap? You're, you're not keeping any of that in mind when you're saying, well, we're just going to repaint everything when we go from one set to the other. And so you're pushing down a lot of that complexity to a level where you're saying, well, that doesn't matter very much, or that isn't what I'm interested in. I know I just, I, I have trouble, I have trouble seeing how I could write a complex GUI application that does a lot of really intricate things for the sake of making for a good user experience or a polished user experience with entirely using this philosophy. But again, I haven't, I haven't done too much of it yet. Um, so, so we'll have to see. But that's what I've got so far. Okay. So, um, so addressing your dumbing down complaint, um, I, I think you are putting too much weight on this idea of doing fancy little tweaks at in a very local level to get the effect you want. Um, you can, when you think about it, it's all... And this all has to be defined somewhere. It's going to be invariable somewhere. So you might as well put it into some sort of um, prop tree that can be rendered correctly all the time. And if you and here I could actually even try out a core animation example. You know, core animation has it's the idea of the two trees of kind of like the, the, the um, I forget what they call it right now, but the idea that you have the tree as like it, ide- ideologically exists, and then you have this tree of where it is right now, and uh, it's time based, right? And so it's, it's it's a similar concept here. And you know, core animation obviously it's full of all sorts of you know uh, acceleration gra- uh, lines and uh, trickery like that. And but this stuff has got to be defined somewhere. And so and you might as well put it in kind of a more robust model that can actually handle this instead of this like stashing into properties here, there, and everywhere. Um, and then you said that um, you felt like. Uh, this felt like Coco to you, like uh, going through React, and you said, "Oh, Coco has a lot of this stuff." And absolutely, I mean, obviously, they're generating, they're using Coco to actually do the, the native UI. Um, I think the point here is that it's like well-written Coco software. So yes, we, you know, you and I, we, we tend to have kind of this idea. We, we go about and we know how to structure uh, Coco software. And uh, we know the patterns and how they work against the against the model and how we should do, flow the callbacks, and so that 
if you need when a change is made, it just flows through and you can minimize the code and and maximize responsiveness. Um, but this you basically have this behavior by default that this is this is how you structure the app. It's almost like like the Rails stuff where it's like we will tell you how to structure your app because we know best. And React gives you that framework. It and it's a it's a good framework, and I think it's up to the task. And I remember like. <laughs> forget how long ago it was, but I remember like I was doing like a, a, a audio editing app and it had like a timeline editor in it. And I, that was like, it was really kind of bogging me down with having to do with uh, kind of uh, drawing the timeline and you could like move clips around and stuff like that. And I was having a lot of trouble with it until I decided, okay, I'm just going to write this function, this method that given the state will just draw it. And I don't care how inefficient it inefficient it is i'll just do it and turned out to be totally fast enough and it dramatically simplified the code because i knew that regardless of what the user did i always just could call that method and it would look right and then my big surprise is when i added undo and because undo just changed the model and then i redrew was based on the model i just got that behavior for free and so yeah that's a good way to structure apps and and i think react is doing a good job of kind of calling it out to the forefront um, and finally, the um, the tree. So the I would say my main complaint with React, and I haven't used the native stuff at all, but um, it uses this uh, cold data structure that's um, kind of like those uh, closure tree things where um, I forget what what they name them, but the idea that you have like a version tree or this like a version variable, uh, a set of variables inter inter. Woven. I'm doing a bad job explaining this, and we even talked about this on a previous episode. I don't even have the episode in mind, but I. But uh, basing on that, I think is a good overall. But I say my main qualm is that it is a tree, and it turns out there's you can fake a you can probably put probably they're they're duels of each other. You probably could put an arbitrary object graph and kind of represent it as a tree. But man, I am so used to dealing with my core data object graphs where not everything has to look like a Unix file system. And where as we all know, that tends to just lead to insanity in terms of like organized information. Like I can just have yeah. objects pointing to each other and it all just makes complete logical sense. Once you have to jam that into a tree structure, that's where my main complaint is. And that's it for me. Okay. Yeah, I guess I would say, yeah, <clears throat> I think I want to explore this, this way of doing things more. Um, uh, I, I think, and I, again, I think, again, I think it's interesting that, um, <clears throat> that they, that they have this whole concept that there is this whole philosophy of theirs. And again, it, it does feel like they're, they're battling against the chaos instead of, um, instead of being against everybody else who's out there, I think they're, they're trying to, to, to stamp order onto the chaos, onto the void as they go. And, and it is an interesting way of doing that. I just, I, I would love if they were a more native feeling way of trying this out for Coco. Uh, Cause I, I just don't think, I don't think this is, this is it. I mean, nothing, I mean, me. it doesn't need to be implemented in JavaScript. If it's, if you're chafing because it's not an objective CSS, yeah. this can be written in this. It's, it's just, but there's so much of this. I mean, again, this is really like bringing. This is very similar to to the mono, mono and mono touch stuff. Yeah, that they're bringing an entirely different way of doing things, an entirely different culture, an entirely different uh, system, and trying to layer it on top of Coco. Mm -hmm. And I'm still just not a fan 
of, of trying to do things like that. I think it's going to, there's going to be a lot of friction to trying to make a really good cocoa application out of that kind of a combination. Um, so, so again, this might be a good reason for me to try reactive cocoa, which is not, uh, again, not something imported from another platform, but something that they did mm-hmm. directly onto, on top of iOS, yeah. on top of Mac. So maybe, maybe that'll be next or maybe that'll be soon. All right. And we'll see you next time.